Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CE curriculum. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. We have about uh, 17 minutes uh, for discussion, and um, I'll start with a question for for Dan and for for John. I think that um, you talked a lot about how do you select these patients, but um, I'd like to to ask you a question and see if you have some recommendations of who would be the patients who may not benefit. Who who are the patients that you would not select for surgery or for BPA, uh, given comorbidities, or because you think that they may not benefit from from these procedures. So. I think um, we, we sort of balance the risk and rewards. So if the patient has a substantial amount of obstructive disease, like the case that you presented, the 80-year-old woman, I, I look at those angiograms and think, wow, I can really change this person's life uh, with, with an effective operation. Uh, but you also have to think, is this person going to actually recover from cardiac surgery? Um, so uh, you know, if she had severe pulmonary hypertension, which she did, PA pressures of over 100, uh, if I really felt that a lot of her disability, if she's in a wheelchair, if she's on oxygen, she has a lot of functional limitations, if I felt that most of that was attributable to this particular disease, I might say I think surgery is a reasonable thing. But if she also had substantial osteoarthritis, if she had you know, you know myriad of other comorbidities that were not going to get better with an operation, then I would agree with the strategy that you guys undertook, which was to, to do a catheter-based approach uh, in a sort of staged fashion to figure out how do you make somebody you know, better enough to enjoy their quality of life. But, but a lot of these patients can really have significant functional limitations, you know, because of their pulmonary hypertension. And if you think that they, they have a, an opportunity to, to have an improvement in their life, then, then I, I'm, I'm willing to push those comorbidities aside. That being said, I think you sent me a patient who had a BMI of 80. And I think I, I did. I think I did send her back to you and said, "See if you can make her a little better surgical candidate before she comes back." But anyways, I'd love to get Dan's perspective. Yeah, I think I think there are a couple things to that. One, when you have comorbid reasons for pulmonary hypertension, that's a risky situation. I think for the operating room, um, trying to figure out what the attributable amount of symptoms are to one particular co- one particular comorbidity can be difficult. And so if there's a question over how much of the symptoms are related to CTEP, I, I think sometimes, and we have weekly, as I'm sure you do, we have weekly meetings regarding these patients, trying to hear about their history, look at their images together with our radiologist, our pulmonary hypertension team, cardiologist, trying to figure out what the best pathway is forward. If the pathway is ambiguous, sometimes we'll take those patients for balloon pulmonary angioplasty with some shared medical decision-making with the patient to say, you know, we're going to look and see if you respond to this, if you will feel better or not. Um, I will say in this patient population, my nurses in the cath lab absolutely love to take care of them because after surgery or after a couple sessions with the responders, the patients like say, I feel so much better. The nurses feel a lot of value for taking care of these patients, which can sometimes be different post-cabbage or some of our other cardiac patients where um, they don't get that much symptomatic benefit. So I think... One, if there's comorbid disease, we have a lot of discussion over, will you be a responder or not? And um, typically, if I'm concerned, we'll usually give it three or four sessions to see if they are a responder. And I'm not going to keep doing sessions if someone really is not. Okay. All right. And, and John, uh, maybe you can uh, talk to us a little bit about 
how the comorbid parenchymal lung disease kind of interferes with your decision making because I think that that's an area where we struggle quite a bit in, in, in making the right decision. Yeah, so, so you, know, you like to think that all your patients have, have one diagnosis, right? Ulcer's law, that there's one explanation that for, for everything. But of course, when you're operating on a population that's in the age of 60, 70, uh, you know, they have other comorbidities. And when they have significant COPD or, or, or worse pulmonary fibrosis, um, you know, is their CTEF the main driver of their symptoms or is it their other comorbidities? And, and so, you know, I was tasked with giving a talk, uh, thou shalt not reperfuse diseased lungs, um, talking about exactly this phenomena that somebody has, has you know, bad emphysema or, or, or pulmonary fibrosis and they also happen to have, you know, vascular obstruction is, is uh, what does Val say, is the juice worth the squeeze? Um, <laughs> you know, is doing an operation going to make them better, perfusing part of the lung that's, that's bad? In fact, you might even make them worse by, by getting perfusion to areas of the lung that have poor gas exchange. So. Um, I guess what I'd have to say is uh, I, I benefit from working in an environment where there's a lot of people around me that are much smarter than me. And so having our multidisciplinary dis you know, discussion with you and, and Val and, and, and the rest of our colleagues, radiology as well, that uh, can be very helpful in deciding what the right approach is. Yeah. There's a lot of questions too. I think after QP, this, this um, case seemed like there's pulmonary hypertension probably early on. I struggle with how long to wait before you pull the trigger. And I think that that time frame from acute PE to CTAP has shortened in part just because of awareness. I think um, our follow-up for particularly patients with submassive, massive PE, those patients should be seen um, very soon after the discharge. One, to make sure they're on good medical therapy, that their symptoms are getting better, and then what the timeline is and what that testing and follow-up follow-up, I think we're getting to a point where we probably have some consensus because of our, uh, the balloon pulmonary angioplasty committees and the PERT consortium and, and all these other committees, but they are consensus statements, um, not really data-driven. So, uh, it, you know, three months, six months, how long after a PE would you take someone to surgery? Yeah. I mean, a lot of the patients that I see have already been filtered out by Val and Victor, so I do get the benefit of that. Um, but, but typically when a patient has a new diagnosis. I mean, if somebody has a PE, they don't have pulmonary hypertension, right? They have RV failure, but they don't have pulmonary hypertension. If somebody's given a new diagnosis of PE and they have PA pressures of 70 or 80, it's not an acute PE. It's chronic for sure. Uh, but if they don't have pulmonary hypertension like that, then we always wait at least six months with anticoagulation therapy and then sort of start the whole process again. Um, you know, the best of all worlds is to cure these people with blood thinners. If you can do that, that'd be the, the greatest thing. And blood thinners, you know, are amazing how effective they are with, with PE, even, even massive PEs, how effective it can be. But most of the time we see these patients and they're labeled as having an acute PE and they have all the radiographic stigmata that suggests there's chronicity here that they have uh, uh, you know, mosaic perfusion of their lung, they got big dilated main PAs, you may even see big bronchial collaterals that suggest this, is, this process has been going on. That patient that you presented, the 80-year-old woman with PA pressures of 110, there's no question her PAs, her pulmonary embolism happened probably decades ago, right? For her to develop pulmonary hypertension to that degree and have her walking around 
to suggest that this has been going on a very, very long time. And, and even if you were able to do surgery and, and, and extirpate all the accessible obstruction, she would still have pulmonary hypertension because she has pulmonary vascular changes. This process has been going on so long that that's a person that you likely won't cure, but you can make him substantially better either with BPA or with surgery because a lot of it is still mechanical disease. You know, in light of the discussions we had in the first session of PVR and epi populations being uh, predictive of mortality, mild elevations of the PVR, do you consider this a high a PE, not CTEF, not acute on chronic, but an, an acute PE presenting, do you consider this a high risk patient population that should be screened for pH regularly? And if so, how do you do it? I mean, to Dan's point of um, the time frame of when do you call it CTEF versus um, uh, you know, something else, or, or do you do you think every patient with a PE should be have some sort of follow up to look for chronic disease? Yeah, no, I, I think Mike, that's a, that's a great question and, and a very important topic. I'll tell you what we do at Michigan, and I think we we have a great collaboration with the, the per team that sees these patients consistently in the hospital, and uh, we have a rapid access clinic for post PE post acute PE syndrome. Um, that we tend to see the patients about one month after their hospitalization. And uh, Jeff Barnes is uh, the, the person who leads that uh, acute PE clinic. And we're very, we have a very low threshold to test these patients uh, if they have any residual symptom after their pulmonary embolism. So patients who have dyspnea, who uh, a lot of patients describe just, I don't feel back to baseline. And, and, and they can't maybe elaborate the, the fact that they cannot exercise as much as they did before or they cannot climb the stairs as they did before. Uh, but those patients are consistently getting a VQ scan um, about three months after the, the anticoagulation. Uh, they've been therapeutically anticoagulated and they're getting a, an echocardiogram. And that's when, if there's any uh, abnormality in any of those tests, I mean, they will be seen by us and we'll, we'll start that uh, pulmonary hypertension uh, CTEF diagnosis. Uh, I also want to point out, uh, I think that the testing uh, utilization in post-acute PE patients is very, very low. Um, our group recently published a paper on uh, using the Optum database. Uh, it's a national claims database. And, and we found that in patients who have any symptoms that um, may categorize them as having a, a post-pulmonary embolism syndrome, uh, between three and five percent of the patients got a VQ scan nationally, um, and I think that that's a test that that really has the sensitivity that you need to catch this patient population, especially the the distal uh, CTEF patients, the, the 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 patients who would benefit from a balloon pulmonary angioplasty the most. Um, and very interestingly, too, um, CT pulmonary angiograms are older somewhere between forty and fifty percent. So I think that there's a misconception about what is the test of choice to look for residual pulmonary vascular obstructions. Um, but that, that's what we do. I don't know, Ruben, if yeah. you, you want to add to that. I, I, I would uh, second that. I think, and Mike, obviously you know the practice here, but we have a post-PE clinic. It's a multidisciplinary clinic that involves both uh, pulmonary um, interventional radiology and, and, for the most part, hematology as well to sort of help us with that. And we tend to try and use some of those uh, hazard ratios, those odd, odds ratios that we saw there. So submassive, massive PEs, patients who've presented with symptoms that sort of presented for longer than two weeks, or those who may have Im imaging findings that are suggestive of an acute on chronic process to screen. Um, 
I think there is a role for screening the acute PE population. I don't think there's a role for screening all comers with acute PE. It's just not feasible. And, you know, the good prospective registry suggests that it's only a small fraction of them that go on to develop CTEF, let alone excluding the disease of CTED. I think that's a follow-up period issue. Like how long, you know, I, I feel like the 20-year-old who comes in with a PE presents a 40-year-old with their CTEP, as a 40-year-old with their CTEP, right? You know, so like a four-year follow-up, two-year follow-up, is that really enough to say with the incidence of CTED or CTEP is after, say, a submassive or massive? So I'll walk that back. So that those, those trials were acute PE mandated to be tolerating their anticoagulation and they were following it. So, so you're right, it's different than actual clinical practice where there's oftentimes medical or uh, insurance reasons why they haven't tolerated their anticoagulation, haven't been on it for a while, have been lost to follow-up. So, yeah, it's hard to answer, but I, I think in those who have tolerated anticoagulation, they're on it for their prescribed, whether it's uh, provoked or unprovoked. I think that the data would suggest that after two years, the incidence of CTEF is pretty minimal. So I think you're, you know, at least the way I practice, and it could be wrong, the way I practice is if I'm following an acute PE who's at high risk for CTEF, if I've screened them for two years and there's no evidence of CTEF on RV or uh, even VQ or CTA, that's the end of, of our sort of follow-up for CTEF. You know, Ruben, you, you, you presented, I think, in your slide deck uh, that, that the incidence of prior PE, uh, you know, in the CTEF population is 75%, that it's only 25% of people had no history of PE. I feel like in our practice, and again, I'm, I'm you know, I've already been screened with, 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 with my medical colleagues, but it seems like more than half of those patients uh, have no known history of PE. And if they do have a history of PE, their, their P, at the time of their PE diagnosis, it was clearly chronic. So their PE likely happened a long time before. And I, th I think that's the, a large, a very high percentage of the CTEF population are people who had PEs and they chalked it up to indigestion and never got treated. Yeah, or pneumonia or some other type Something, of yeah. yeah. Uh, Tom had a question. Yeah. So we've talked a fair amount about patient selection and comorbidities and now talking about follow-up of patients. I think one of the other challenging situations that comes up is that patient who comes to you, they're still symptomatic at three months, you get the VQ scan, it's positive, you do the right heart cath, and they don't meet hemodynamic definitions of pulmonary hypertension. So their mean PA pressure is less than 20, but you talk with them and their life's clearly been changed uh, since the PE. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach uh, this situation and specifically the management of chronic thromboembolic disease that doesn't have pulmonary hypertension? Yeah, I, um, I think it's, I'll take it and sure. definitely fill in there. Um, I think what we would typically do at that point is make sure that they've sort of been adherent to their anticoagulation. There isn't any reason for breaks or, or, or failure there. And then I think we would CPEP them. And I think we would try to document their um, symptom limitation as vascular in origin. And if that's the case, then I think as long as it's not proximal obstructions, we would think about moving them towards Dan. If it is proximal obstructions, I think we move them towards our surgical uh, colleague, Dr. Malazari, because we have operated on patients with CTED and we have offered them a pretty impressive symptomatic benefit from an exertion perspective too. So I think the CPED is what helps you there. As long as you get that pre and then you get that post intervention, it really makes us feel better about offering them something as um, invasive as a, an endoterectomy surgery. And, and, and I would uh, agree with you, Ruben, and everything you said. I think, you know, once you, you have a patient who may not have CTAF because they don't meet pulmonary hypertension, uh, hemodynamic criteria, I think I would look at, at the whole picture and try to make sure that I'm, I don't have a patient who's, you know, 80 years old with other comorbidities like heart failure, severe coronary disease. But, but if, if, I can, if I can be sure that the 
obstructive pulmonary disease is the reason why they feel short of breath. Uh, we do exercise for her calf, CPAT, invasive CPAT. If there's nothing else that can explain their symptoms, I think that revascularization is, is very, very reasonable. Um, and then I, I would go back, if, if I find myself in that situation, I would go back to the usual pathway for, for CTF patients. Do they have surgical accessible disease? And, and we may have a little bit of a different threshold because they have CTED and not CTEF, but we have operated on, on a good number of CTED patients uh, who have reported dramatic changes in the quality of life. There was one patient in particular who, who had most of the, the right lung completely obstructed and, and felt trillion percent better um, in balloon pulmonary angioplasty for sure. I, I think that it's a, a little bit of a misconception that in CTEF, the reason why patients feel short of breath is their pulmonary hypertension. I think that the pulmonary hypertension is, is part of the problem, but the vascular obstructions uh, are also a huge part of the problem. And, and I, I don't think we have a good way to measure that. And I think in the future, we'll, we'll change our diagnostic approach to understand a little bit better how we can measure their degree of vascular obstructions that being responsible for symptoms. All right. We you know, the, 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 the thing I do worry about, though, is that uh, there's great variability in CT imaging quality. And, um, and, and not only the quality of the scan, but the quality of the interpretation. Uh, and so I think if you rely on CT imaging as the sole method of determining if somebody has residual clot after PE, you're going to miss a lot of people, I, th I think. Yeah, and, I'll, and it's probably not just quality, right? I mean, it's, it's the protocol that they have. Well, what, what we think quality, someone else might say, well, my scan looks great, but it's, you know, a, a, a cut that's thicker than should be done to find webs. And I think I also push back that we, and I know Mike and I have talked about this, we've, we struggle because I, I, a totally normal VQ scan way may not be totally normal based on who's reading the VQ mm -hmm. scan. Um, and these webs and these, in, in non-congenital patients, these webs and these, pro, these um, mural thrombi in patients who are symptomatic, it, it, I wonder that if there is an element of proximal or of obstruction that's causing their symptoms. I, you know, the VQ scan with the bronchial artery collaterals, you can have perfusion. There is a good paper out there that looked at this that you can have a VQ that's normal because of the bronchial artery collateral anastomosis in the supply there, and because of the way the VQ is done. So, yeah, I think it, it, like we said, it's a multidisciplinary conversation with multiple imaging modalities. And I think as the future progresses, the imaging and the quality of that imaging is going to get pretty pretty good for us. All right, we're, we're uh, done with our time, we're up, so uh, we'll go to our next session. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Global Learning Collaborative, GLC, and Total CME LLC, and is part of our Minute CE curriculum. To receive your free CME credit, or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.